<laughs> Hear this greeting from God, my friends. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to worship at Fellowship Church. Whether you are gathering with us in person or online, whether you are with, coming in with a jacket and shivering amidst the colder weather this morning, or you are laying in the sun with a t-shirt on online, whether you are able-bodied and eager to be here or stuck in a place that you don't really want to be, whether you are uh, up early enough this morning for the sunrise or following the command to rest this morning, whether you are filled with faith or just hanging on by a thread, we are glad that you are here to worship. Let us join our voices together with a call to worship uh, that you, you'll find on the screen this morning. You who live in the shadow of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress. You are my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High will be your dwelling place. No evil shall befall us, no scrooge shall come near your tents. Those who love the Lord, God will deliver. God protects those who know the name of the Lord. God saves them and honors them in times of trouble. Show us your salvation, O God. Show us your favor as we offer you our worship. Let us stand and do just that.
Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. You may be seated. Friends, this morning our prayer is guided by the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with what that is. For those of you who don't know, it's a teaching tool that was created 460 years ago this year. The beauty of that tool is that it puts big and important ideas of our faith in God into simple words that even children can understand. It's in the form of questions and answers, and so it's easily accessible and approachable. One part of why we gather in worship is to be continually shaped and formed as God's people. And we do this by rooting ourselves in the truth of who God is and by growing in our understanding of what God has revealed to us about God's own self, about this world, and about who we are as God's beloved children. With that in mind, I invite you to join me in the words on the screen. We'll use the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, and then we will pray together. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Would you join me in your hearts in prayer? Lord, you are the only true God. You are what our hearts need and even want, though at times our vision is poor and we cannot see your glory, power, mercy, and wisdom. But even while we were still living in sin and in opposition to you, you had compassion on us and died for us. You lifted us out of the pit, opened our eyes, washed us clean, forgave our sins, and put a new spirit in us. We belong to you. What a wonderful and glorious thought. Please help us to believe it with all our heart, mind, and soul. We are yours. We belong to you. And though the devil tempts and accuses us, and though we still sin, he will never have control of us. We can never be plucked from your hand. We are yours. We belong to you. Any trial or suffering we endure is allowed by you. Nothing can happen to us that cannot ultimately be used for our good. Whether we live or die in prosperity or poverty, in health or disease, we are yours and you are ours. We belong to you. We are yours. We belong to you. So we owe you all that we have, our time, our money, our possessions, even the air we breathe. Please teach us to live like we are yours. Teach us to offer everything back to you. We thank you for your abundant blessings in Jesus Christ, who died for us, that we may live. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to continue to join us in singing.
peace of Christ be with you. I invite you as you are comfortable and able to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor and those online to greet each other in the chat. church and friends and guests, the Lord be with you. And happy Sunday. It looks to be a beautiful one to be gathered uh, for worship this morning. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. And we are, of course, glad that so many of you are already living that mission with us. And the invitation is always open if you are new around here, to join us in doing so. If you are new and would like to make yourself known, we have some connection cards available at the Welcome Center out back there that you could fill out, and, and we would uh, be able to connect with you all the more. You could get in on our uh, uh, emails and other publicities. We'd love to have you in that regard. We also have our bulletin, of course, and I draw your attention to uh, the middle section where we have our prayers for people within our congregation, celebrations, um, and prayer requests also, uh, one that I want to draw art out because so many of you participated in it over the Christmas season. We had a bunch of cards and bags out there in the atrium, which were sent out to folks like Ruth and Roger Bohr, who have sent in a message saying, thank you for 50 plus cards, this warm hug from the fellowship family to celebrate uh, the Christmas season together. So thanks for doing that. And uh, thanks be to God that we are doing life together here at fellowship. Uh, 
if you are new around here and would like to consider either learning more or joining in membership, we have upcoming our Discover Fellowship Cafe class. It is a Sunday afternoon intensive. That's what we do in the winter season. Uh, January 29, immediately after this service, with lunch included, um, for you or for someone that you might nudge that might want to join in with us or simply learn about the church, that's what that is. And the end result is, of course, the option to join in membership here. So take note of that. It's in your bulletin, and if you'd like to sign up, you can use the QR code there. Also today, you may have noticed, uh, in fact, I invite you to get out your wrist and put your two fingers on there like this. This is how we check our pulse, right? And you had a little card on your chairs as you arrived in the sanctuary this morning. Uh, It's our pulse survey. It's our way of checking our health, naming our current reality here at Fellowship. And uh, if you haven't taken it yet, we'd love to invite you to do so. Thank you for the many of you who already have. And if you haven't yet, uh, we're inviting you to stick around immediately after this service. The band is going to play Jeopardy. And then we have a couple other fun songs that are kind of quizzy that we'll have a little time where you can actually just stay here and do it on your smartphone or a paper copy. uh, And and we can, uh, this is the last day to do the surveys. So we'd love to get them in yet today. So please do so. If you have hard copies, paper copies with you today, uh, or if you'd like one, you can get them at the Welcome Center there and, and, and turn them in there. They'll help you finish them up as well. So uh, one other reminder, I invite you to even to just do a little looking around the sanctuary, the people nearby you. We are in a season of nominations where we nominate one another to possibly be on the leadership board, the consistory of this church. We have a team of about 30 people, a little more than that who do that here and uh, would love for you to begin this process of thinking about who you might nominate for such a time as this of leadership here at Fellowship Church. There'll be times and opportunities to officially turn those in in the very near future, but now would be a great time to begin thinking and praying about who that might be in our midst. Finally, kids, you are uh, now free to scoot out to your worship adventures. Miss Betsy's there in the back, ages three through fifth grade. And the rest of us are going to continue in worship through song. Would you stand and let's sing together? Jesus knows our 
may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful that you loved us and chose us and created us and redeemed us for friendship with yourself. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to gather together in worship with other friends who have been gathered unto you. Help us to continue to worship um, through singing and through prayer and ultimately, and also through studying the scriptures. Um, And in them, help us to see you more clearly and hear you more clearly and um, glorify you more fervently. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and I am thrilled that we get to hop into week two of a series that we kicked off last week that Reverend Dieleman picked off, uh, kicked off last week um, to... <laughs> Did... Never mind. <laughs> uh, kicked off last week, introducing us to the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we'll be focused for the next several weeks, uh, and a sermon series that we're calling The Teacher, uh, and this is a little bit to do with, um, with the nature of the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, Matthew is written by and comes from the eyewitness accounts um, of Matthew, one of the closest, uh, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus, and Matthew is a very unique character to become a disciple. He was a tax collector, uh, kind of a seedy character um, in the first century. Uh, And the gospel of Matthew, though, is uniquely shaped, um, particularly by the experience of the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Matthew focuses in on the teachings of of Jesus, uh, which stands out alongside the other eyewitness accounts of the life um, and the story of Jesus Christ. And so uh, over the course of this series, then we're going to be paying attention to um, not only Jesus as Lord, not only Jesus as Savior, not only Jesus as friend, but also Jesus as teacher to learn what he taught to his disciples um, in his own time in his earthly um, life and also what he has to say to his disciples in our time. Today's story is in Matthew 4, if you want to start making your way there. And in Matthew chapter 4, uh, we encounter a very peculiar story in the scriptures, uh, which we'll get into in a bit. Uh, this is a story, though, that appears in three of the four gospel accounts or eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, it appears in Matthew, which we're reading, but also in Mark and in Luke. Uh, and interestingly, it appears in the exact same place in all of those texts. Uh, that doesn't always happen in the gospels. They're telling the story in different ways, and so sometimes stories move around. But this is one of the stories, one of the few stories that happens precisely um, in the place, um, in the same place across all of those. So it happens immediately after the baptism of Jesus. Third interesting thing about this particular story uh, is that usually we're talking about eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, people were there, um, and then they internalized these moments, and then they wrote them down eventually. Uh, but this is a moment, Jesus in the wilderness, uh, where Jesus is there by himself, which means there are no eyewitnesses. So how does this story make it um, into three of our four gospel accounts? Well, it's simple. Jesus tells his disciples about this particular moment that we're going to study today. Uh, There's something about this particular moment in the life of Jesus that profoundly marks him, um, impacts him, and so much so that he, um, and of all the things, of all the things that he could have shared with his disciples, of all the stories that he could have told to his disciples, this particular one, he gathers them around him like a good rabbi would, and he communicates this story because there's something about this story that Jesus wants us to learn not only about himself, but also 
also about, about those of us who follow after him. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter four, picking up in verse one, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <clears throat> and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then a devil took him to the holy city and set Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, God will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to the devil, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and all of their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you would but fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is one of the more peculiar stories in the scriptures because in it, we encounter Jesus engaging in direct conversation, extensive conversation, intense and passionate conversation with the devil. I don't know about you, but if I were on public transportation and the person next to me told me that they were engaging in a deep conversation with the devil, I would probably move my seat. And if one of your friends came to you after a trip and they were in the desert, maybe somewhere in Southwest America, and they came back to you and they said, you know, while I was in the desert, I had a long chat with the devil. You'd be like, yeah, I'm going to call your loved ones and also maybe a doctor. Uh, so, uh, so this is a really peculiar moment. Uh, and there's a temptation to do a couple of different things when we encounter things like this in the scriptures. We either get distracted we get distracted by it and we go off the deep end in one direction, or we completely discard it we completely discard it, which is to go off the deep end in another direction, but we miss then what God is doing through Matthew, what God is doing through the story, and what Christ is doing in this encounter. And so just one guardrail for us this morning, I actually want to um, look a little bit at the scriptures and what they show us about what they show us about evil, um, Satan, the devil, uh, to kind of bring that into focus in this story so that we can unpack it a little bit better. Uh, so for starters, uh, we encounter a few references to the devil or to Satan uh, in the scriptures uh, that it actually comes from the name, uh, from a Hebrew word, uh, hashatan. Repeat after me, hashatan. Yeah, that literally, so it's the Satan, the Satan, uh, which means that Satan is not first a name of a person. Uh, Satan is, it's actually the Satan or the adversary is one way to translate that or the accuser. Uh, so the adversary or the accuser, it's only eventually that this, this creature gets personified in the form of a creature, but initially it means the adversary or the accuser. Um, we first encounter the adversary um, in Genesis chapter three. Uh, we encounter the adversary as a crafty serpent who comes to the first couple, Adam and Eve. Uh, in Genesis three, Adam and Eve have been uh, created. They are the first humans, the text tells us. Uh, and they are created in the image of who? 
God. They're created in the image of God, the scriptures tell us, which means that they're created with the capacity to know and love God, but they're also, and with that capacity to know and love God is a responsibility to, from knowledge and from love of God, to steward creation, to be God's conduits of blessing and life and flourishing in creation. But almost as soon as they are placed in the garden to live into this task of theirs, this vocation of theirs, they encounter a crafty serpent who tempts them to distrust the God who loved them and chose them and created them and sent them into the world to abandon the word of the Lord to them and to follow the crafty serpent instead This is the closest thing we get to an origin story for evil uh, in the scriptures, uh, which otherwise don't spend very much time telling us where evil comes from or telling us a ton about the devil or a ton about the figure uh, that we now refer to as Satan. Uh, The scriptures instead focus on two primary things, both what evil looks like or what Satan or the devil does uh, and also how God plans to deal with it. So first, the adversary shows up in a number of ways. I'm just going to go through a couple uh, throughout the scriptures. Uh, First, as a murderer who works to destroy life rather than preserving it. Uh, As a liar who distorts and misrepresents truth. We hear that in John chapter 8. As a thief who steals the word of God and the gifts of God from our hearts and our lives. We read about that in John chapter 10. As a snare who trips us up as we journey through life. We read in 2 Timothy as a roaring lion who prowls around devouring people and relationships and creation, we read about in 1 Peter. As a tempter who slyly suggests destructive things to us, we read about in John 13. And also as an accuser who tempts us to pursue our destruction and pursue destruction for others, and then when we finally do, shames us for it and accuses us for it. We read about in Zechariah chapter 3. So second, the scriptures tell us how God plans to deal with evil and the adversary. We hear the beginnings of that plan in Genesis chapter 3. In the tragic aftermath of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, God pronounces his plans to crush and banish evil. And in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, we hear Jesus echo this pronouncement of the impending defeat of evil. And in Revelation chapter 20, the writer, John, is given a picture of the dramatic and final overthrow of evil. What the scriptures tell us about evil and about the adversary is not everything that our curiosity would have us to know, but they do tell us that there is something absurd and mysterious and insidious called evil that we contend with in our lives. They show us that over time, this absurd, mysterious, insidious evil is personified in a creature that we call devil or the Satan, a creature that works in and through human character and choices and systems and institutions. But more than how evil works and even how humans collude with it, ultimately the scriptures tell us that in and through the person of Christ, God looks evil right in the face and says an emphatic no. Which brings us to why exactly Jesus is led into the wilderness. Our text says that he is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God himself, and specifically to be tempted by the adversary, which makes this story even more peculiar because it's almost like the Father is leading him into an ambush. It's kind of like that moment when you're driving on the road and your GPS says they have a better route, but then they lead you directly into a traffic jam. And you're like, Apple Maps, what's the deal? (laughs) 
So is this what is this what's happening? Is is the father ambushing Jesus? Is the father is the father betraying Jesus by leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the adversary? What exactly is happening here? Well, I think it has a little bit to do with the way that we translate our word tempted. Uh, In my favorite ESV version up on the screen, uh, the word tempted is literally listed as tempted. Uh, Also in the NIV, some of you read the NIV, some of you read the King James Version, and some of you might read the New Living Translation. Most versions translate tempted uh, as tempted, uh, but I think that's sort of confusing for our modern ears um, because another way of translating tempted is to test. Uh, it's this Greek word, uh, peirazzo. Let me hear you say peirazzo. Peirazzo. Uh, it does mean to tempt, but it also means, broader range of meaning, to prove or to test something. To prove or to test something. Uh, for instance, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus, uh, they come to Jesus, the exact same word, they come to peirazzo him. Are they coming to get Jesus to do something bad? Probably not. They're coming to Jesus to test him with questions. Why? Because they want to uncover who Jesus really is. Now, in their minds, Jesus is not the Son of God. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is a bad prophet or a false prophet. That's what they're trying to uncover because they think that if they continue to test him, eventually proof of who Jesus is will be uncovered for all of the people to prove uh, or to test or to um, is what it means, um, what peirazzo means. And that is closer to what it means in our text. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible translates it well when he writes next, meaning after the baptism of Jesus, Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for the test. And the devil, the adversary, was ready to give it. So Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tested. And what the devil intends is to tempt Jesus, to entice Jesus to do something bad. What the Father intends is to prove or test the truth of who Jesus is, to uncover the truth of who Jesus is. And both of these, both of these can be true at the same time. Both of these can hold together. Now, why might we conclude something like this? Well, there's a context clue in the text. How long has Jesus been in the wilderness fasting? 40 days and 40 nights. He's not eating after dark either. 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, It's meant to, this number 40 is a callback. Uh, It's meant to bring your mind back to other times and instances where God's people have been someplace for 40 markings of time. Uh, For instance, Moses is on Mount Sinai fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights as he waits to hear the word of the Lord and to receive the law from him. Elisha, Elijah, uh, is in the wilderness traveling for 40 days and 40 nights over to the mountain of God so that he can hear the word of the Lord. Similarly, God's people, and this is the instance I want to direct you to, God's people, the Israelites, are in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years after being in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years, uh, and They end up in the wilderness wandering around for 40 years. Um, And the question becomes, how did they get to the wilderness? Well, as it turns out, their story picks up just after Adam and Eve. Uh, Remember, Adam and Eve fail their test with the adversary. And shortly after that, God comes to a couple named Abraham and Sarah and says to them, 
I am going to bless your children. Uh, your children will be a blessing to the world. Through your children, I will bless all of creation. And he even promises that he will give their children land so that they can build a society that looks like God's picture of life and flourishing and blessing, so much so that it attracts the attention and the awe of other nations around them who will come and inquire of their God. And even when that plan goes awry, uh, even when they end up enslaved, enslaved to Egypt, to the Pharaoh in Egypt, God shows up and he rescues them. And along the way to the land that he promised to their ancestors years and years, hundreds of years before, God brings them into the wilderness. Now, why does God bring them to the wilderness? Why does he have them wander there for 40 years, especially when there was a more direct route? Sorry, I don't have a map, but there was a more direct route to the place where they were going. Well, the text tells us in Exodus chapter 13, quite frankly, when they emerge from Egypt, after Israel emerges from Egypt, they are too weak to face off with the nations around them and certainly with the nations who exist in the promised land. That is both literal and spiritual, something atrophied over the course of hundreds of years of captivity and it would take their 40 years in the wilderness to strengthen them, to physically strengthen them, to physically strengthen their muscles, uh, to help them be prepared to do battle, uh, but to also strengthen their faith muscle, their courage muscle. Because the fear is that the moment they emerge out of slavery in Egypt and they encounter these nations around them, they are gonna be so terrified. They have so little trust and faith in God that they're gonna turn around and run back, run back to Egypt. And so God takes them into the wilderness, into the wilderness so that they can get stronger and grow in courage and trust. It's in the wilderness that God's people are tested. Now, why am I telling you this? Because Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Israel, exiled to Egypt as an infant, baptized in the Jordan. And as he passes through the waters, just like the people pass through the Red Sea, led by God into the wilderness to be tested. But not only does this tell us that Jesus is retracing the steps of the entirety of the entire people of Israel, it also tells us what's being tested in the wilderness, which Moses states pretty forthrightly just before the people enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy 8. Specifically, Moses says to prove what was in their hearts. He says to, to prove the extent to which they would be faithful to God's word. Um, and in that last line, to discipline them. Why? Precisely because they belong to God and because they are conduits of God's blessing in the world. The wilderness is a place of discipline and training. I um, sometimes chuckle when I sit in trainings um, where people literally do this for like an hour or two hours or three hours. They like talk to you and then you leave the training and supposedly you know how to do the thing that they've talked to you about. Um, but actual training, <laughs> um, actual training is physically like tactile, like with your body and your hands, practicing a skill um, and being coached in a skill and practicing that skill long enough that eventually when you're in a moment, like I don't know, there's an athlete on a football field, you don't have to check your notes. You don't have to go back and figure out the steps. You can spring into action and actually resuscitate someone in real time. Someone's choking in the restaurant around you. You don't have to Google a YouTube video on how to do the Heimlich remover. You, because you've been trained, know how to perform the Heimlich remover. Training and discipline is kind of like that. 
It's the practice, the ongoing practice, so much so that when the moment comes where you are tested, you know how to spring into action without even having to think about it. Um, that is what's happening in the wilderness for God's people who are supposed to be conduits of blessing in the world. When the pressure is on, when they have to act, when the moment comes, will they choose to be conduits of blessing, conduits of curse? Training in the wilderness is designed to ensure that without even having to think about it, their muscle memory kicks in and they immediately become conduits of blessing, immediately. Similarly, Jesus, who after his baptism has just been pronounced as God's own beloved son with, who, with whom he is well-pleased before he's even done anything and is then led into the wilderness to be tested. What's being tested or proven then in the wilderness is not identity. It's not the extent to which we belong to God or Jesus belongs to God or the people of Israel belong to God. That much has already been established by God. What's being tested in the wilderness then is their hearts, their trust in the God who has already demonstrated faithfulness to them, their faithfulness to their call to be God's instruments for blessing in the world. Will they trust God no matter what obstacles they face or will they abandon him and his word and go their own way? Will they be a conduit of blessing when the moment comes to choose or will they decide to be a conduit of the curse? And the place where these questions get answered is the wilderness. The wilderness, because the wilderness is a place of profound hunger and lack and deficiency and vulnerability. The wilderness, because it's precisely the place where we don't have access to everything we want. The wilderness is the place where the infertility and the singleness and the really hard seasons of marriage and the ongoing battles with illness or the rejection letters that keep piling up on the desk or, or the tragic death or, or circumstances of loved ones or the lack of viable job opportunities. The wilderness is the place where the lack of those things begins to eat away at our souls. It's the place where we find ourselves imperiled or in danger. And because of this, it's precisely the place where a well-placed suggestion or enticement has the potential to metastasize into something quite fatal, which is ultimately why the wilderness is the place where character and trust and faithfulness is either strengthened or destroyed. In the wilderness, the adversary meets us for a very real battle. And we learn a lot about how to face this battle from the only person who does so successfully. Now, in Jesus' first moment of testing, the adversary exploits his hunger. You are the son of God, are you not? He says to Jesus. So why are you hungry? Of all people, why are you hungry in the wilderness? The adversary says to Jesus. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? You're a daughter of God. You're the son of the father. If he really cared about you, he wouldn't let you go hungry, would he? And since you are the son of God, he says to Jesus, can't you just do something about that for yourself? Can't you just turn these stones into bread? The adversary whispers a subtle lie to Jesus and to all of us that circumstances, the circumstances of our lives are somehow indicative of God's love and care for us, such that if we lack something, it means that God doesn't actually love us. Adam and Eve fail that test and they eat. Israel fails this test in the wilderness, concluding that God brought them to the desert to starve them. But Jesus replies with the word of the Lord directly from Deuteronomy. It is written, 
that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice Jesus' reply is not that bread is not important. Humans need food. And the one who created them, the one who created us, knows that we need food and intends to provide it. It is actually the adversary that tempts people to the kind of sin and selfishness that impedes proper access to food. And of course, Jesus will eventually turn a few meager pieces of bread into food for thousands. He actually can do this. But here, in this moment, rather than serve himself, Jesus chooses to empty himself and instead to cling to the word of the Lord, to trust the Father, even and especially in the most dire, the most impossible of circumstances. In the second instance of testing, Jesus is taken to the top of the temple. Not literally, this is a vision. Uh, And the adversary tells Jesus to throw himself off the highest point of the temple. And he even quotes, the adversary quotes Psalm 91, this beautiful hymn about God's protection for his people. And he distorts it into a suggestion that Jesus should test God's loyalty to him before he puts his trust in him. Which was another test that Israel failed in the wilderness When they became thirsty in the desert, they began to question God's loyalty to them. Where is this God who brought us into the wilderness just to let us die of thirst, they ask. And they demand that God prove himself and prove his loyalty as though their very presence in the wilderness, as we discussed earlier, were not itself a testament of God's love and loyalty to them. Of course, Jesus at one point does say that he can command legions of angels to rescue him. But here, just as at the end of his earthly life, he chooses not to serve himself, but to empty himself and cling to the word of the Lord to trust in God's unchanging character and his proven track record of steadfast love toward us, even in the face of suffering and hardship. In the third instance of Jesus' testing, the adversary suggests that the empires, the kingdoms, the wealth, the splendor, and the glory of the nations will be handed to you, Jesus, if you would but just worship me, if you would just adore me, the adversary. Now, without getting into the extent to which Satan could even promise or deliver something like this, I think the more significant thing here is the invitation, because it's echoing the same invitation that was offered to God's people in the wilderness and even in the promised land. It's the same invitation that was offered to Adam and Eve and it's the same invitation that comes to us. It cuts to the heart of our vocation as followers of Jesus. Intended to be conduits of blessing, we must, just like they must, serve and love and worship God alone. Compromise leads directly to curse. Um, Idolatry leads directly to curse. Why? Because idols didn't love us before the foundations of the world. They didn't choose us before the foundations of the world. They did not create us in love and for love. They did not desire eternity with us. And it stands to reason that if they are subjects of the adversary, that they are not for us, they are against us and the rest of humanity, and they will use us to bring that about. Remember, the adversary is dead set against life and flourishing and blessing, which means that we can't serve both the adversary and God together. And so here, just like in the other instances, Jesus empties himself and he clings to the word of the Lord to worship, love, and serve God alone. And in doing so, he points directly to the self-emptying love of the cross 
the self-emptying love of the cross that is the only foundation for the kingdom that is meant to and is capable of redirecting human history, redirecting human souls into eternity with God and one another. Three invitations for us to consider this morning. The first is to be cognizant, um, just like Jesus in the wilderness, be cognizant of the moments when we're hungry. Um, be cognizant of the moments where uh, there's a pain point in our lives. Um, a, few, a few months ago at this point, I hurt my knee at the gym. I have not gone to the doctor before anybody asked. Uh, but after I hurt my knee at the gym, um, I realized that I had to be a little bit more watchful of my knee as I worked out, as I lifted weights. I'd be a little bit more watchful of the pain point that is my knee. Your soul is kind of like that. You have pain points in your life, in your heart. You have pain points, these places of tenderness, these places of disappointment. And similarly to the way that the adversary comes to Jesus, the adversary comes to us with intentions of exploiting our disappointments and using and twisting our disappointments into this weird twisted belief that somehow God doesn't care about the things that disappoint us. But God does care, and Jesus actually says as much, bread is important, whatever that thing is, is important, and what Jesus does is trust it with the Father. We don't always have the answers for the things that we face. It's complicated, it's a big, messy, broken world. But what we are instructed to do is to follow after Jesus who places it before the Father and trusts him with it. Which is invitation number two, that we are invited to trust. Before we understand everything, before we know everything, before everything gets worked out, before all the pieces come together, we are invited to trust. Trust our God with the things that matter to us, which is literally the entirety of our lives and our hearts. And where do we learn to do this? We learn this in the very same scriptures that Jesus himself, the son of God, takes the time to internalize and speak to himself and speak over himself and speak back in the moments of testing. I think there's a third invitation in there for us to internalize the scriptures so that we know the word of the Lord, so that we know who God is and what his character is like and what his proven track record is for us and for all of all of the people who have encountered him over time. We study the scriptures to know who we are in him and why we're significant to him. We study the scriptures to hear the word of the Lord to us in specific things that we're facing. The word of the Lord comes to us directly from the scriptures. And so just like Christ, we study those scriptures and internalize those scriptures so that we can discover the truth of who God is rather than fall for the lies that the adversary tells about him. In Christ, in Christ, we see victory play out. Um, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, um, not to succumb to the adversary, but specifically to face off with him. What Jesus does is goes into the wilderness of our world, goes into the wilderness of Judea, into the wilderness of the cross, and even into the wilderness of the pit of hell itself to say directly to the face of the evil one, your grip is going to be loosened. You will be compelled to release the captives. Sin, death, and darkness, the time is running out. Christ's victory that day in the wilderness with the, with the adversary is the first fruits of our victory. And it is because of the blood of Christ, it is because of the spirit of God that empowers us to, that we get to cling to the truth of who God is, the truth of what he does for us, and live by the promises of the word of the Lord who loves us and chooses us and redeems us and desires life for us, with us, and through us. 
Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that we have been embedded within your hearts before the foundation of creation was laid. And that out of love for us, you um, created us. Out of love for us, you redeemed us. Out of love for us, you did battle for us. And out of love for us, you welcome us back into friendship with you and one another. Thank you for the strength to um, to fight. Thank you for the strength to build. Um, thank you for the strength to trust you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we lift up all the things that we face in our lives, both now and in the future. And we trust you with those. And we hopefully glorify you in them too. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In our response this morning, hear these words from Hebrews chapter four. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do stand and let's sing together.
brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Those of you who have not yet taken the Pulse survey, we invite you to hang out with us for a bit and do that. If you need a paper survey or if you have a paper survey, you can take it directly to the Welcome Center. There's some great folks who will help you there. Thank you. <clears throat>